shared with you last week and the week before, actually, that Revelation is a book of perspectives. Do you remember that? Revelation is not a chronological account of the past, present, and future. It's pretty much the same history and future and present described all from different perspectives. The perspectives pretty much begin about 34 CE when our Lord and Savior was resurrected, taken right to the throne room of God and placed on the throne over all the universe. And then the history comes up to our point to the present today and then on into the future to the second coming and then the third coming. I always like to mention there's a third coming and the, end of the, and the beginning and the end of the millennium. Revelation takes us all the way there. In other words, pretty much to the end of sin, the end of time, so that we can be introduced to eternity. So that we've been looking at the perspective of the history of the church up until today through the dragon's perspective. Chapters 12 and 13 is the dragon's perspective of how he sees the church and how he approaches the church. And just as a, as a reminder, uh, we, we believe that it isn't the church against the world living in these last days, it's two churches battling for worshipers, right? One of them, the god of the, the, the false church, is the false god. He is the dragon, the enemy himself. And then the other church, the true church, is led for us by Jesus. The lamb that was what? The lamb that was slain. So chapters 12 and 13 is the dragon's per, uh, approach or the dragon's perspective on how he gets people to worship. And, I, and we came up to a particular point last Sabbath in Revelation 13 when the dragon put his team together. When he figured that he wasn't strong enough and he put his, tream, his team together. So he has a beast that comes up out of the sea and a beast that comes up out of the land and he puts them together and he has his false trinity, right? Approaches the church the same way that uh, Christ approaches the church. The father approaches the church through the son and the Holy Spirit. The dragon has his own trinity, these two beasts. So I thought that after a few controversial statements that I made last week, that maybe as with other times when I've opened my mouth, that maybe I need a little bit more perspective and maybe uh, some of you won't think that uh, I'm such a heretic. If we look at a little more perspective and I can get a little bit more behind us. So I wanna look at what we studied last week in Revelation 13, but I wanna look at it from the perspective of how Jesus approaches this, how he comes to the church. And where we find that is in Revelation chapters two and three, and Jesus' message to the churches. He begins in uh, chapter one by saying this, John is, is speaking, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. 
Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. So real quick, if, you, if this is your first introduction to the seven churches, uh, it isn't this church's first introduction. I've been to the seven churches several times in my years here because I find so much in it. I find our complete history of the church. I find our complete presence of Christ in today, in the present day, and I see so much hope for the future in the seven churches all the way up to the point. So remember that the seven churches are real. On one hand, they were real. They were real churches in Asia Minor. Every one of these seven are all towns or communities or provinces in Asia Minor back in the first century. They were actual churches. And also it represents the church prophetically. And real quick, uh, what was, what's the most accurate way uh, I, I, I talked about it last week. What's the most accurate way to know that a prophecy has been fulfilled or how it will be fulfilled? It's after it's been fulfilled. So for Revelation uh, 2 and 3 and the history of the churches, the history of the churches bring us all the way up into the present. We believe as Seventh-day Adventists that we are the church at Laodicea. That is our era which means it's the last era of the church just before Jesus comes. And so we, for, for us, most of this is history. And this is why I find it so encouraging because as horrible as a past that the church has, it'll bring us right up to where we are living today, just waiting, waiting. So it's an era it was real churches, and it's an era. Real quick, with, with one of the rules, uh, uh, every church has one thing, or at least one thing, that they are praised for, and they have at least one thing that they are rebuked for. Jesus says, I'm encouraged that you're doing this, and then he also says, but I have this against you. Except for two. There are two churches that have no rebuke, only praise. We'll briefly look at one of them today, Smyrna and Philadelphia, and Philadelphia we'll look at next week and the week after. But they have only praise, no rebuke. The second principle is to notice that from Ephesus to Laodicea, the church declines in spiritual health. The church uh, may, at, at, at times and periods of time, look physically fine, but spiritually, Jesus keeps finding more and more wrong with it until the very end, the one church that he doesn't say anything nice about is Laodicea. Laodicea is only rebuked. He cannot say one good thing about us. <laughs> I wish I had better news. But the church begins to decline in Ephesus because of one thing, of the one thing that he had wrong with Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus, they were doing great things. Oh, uh, just real quick, one more rule. Is that when Jesus introduces himself to each church, he introduces himself by a description and a title. And the description and the title is usually what the church needs to address their rebuke. So in Ephesus, he, uh, he's got some good things, good things happening in Ephesus. 
Ephesus, all the way back at the beginning, it goes from the apostolic or the end of the apostolic area to about 110 CE. It's the post-apostolic church. How many here have heard of the church fathers? The leaders that the apostles passed on to. The very first uh, leaders that the apostles gave. It's the church fathers era. And it's the first time that the church has to deal with heresies. Think of this, a brand new church over the next almost 100 years. Imagine all of the things that it has to address. Because it's brand new. There's never been anything like this before. It's brand new, isn't it? And so all of a sudden now the fathers, they have to write, they have to begin to address heresies, they got to begin to lay out what is it we really believe. There is, there is all kinds of things going on. Right now in prayer meeting we're, discu- we're, we're discussing at least one of them. A group of, of believers that believe that the Gentiles need to be circumcised. And another group says, no, the, 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 it's, it's, it's battling all of these heresies. And in this, Jesus is telling them, Jesus is telling them, I commend you for this. I like the idea that you're weeding out false teaching and false teachers. But he has one thing against them. He says, I have one thing against you. It's that you've abandoned your first one. You've abandoned your first love. The love that you had at first. And real quick, sometimes that we think that this is referring to us, you know, the, the passion and everything that you have in a, very, uh, in a very brand new relationship. You know, we look back over, over relationships and we have times that they're, that they're cool and they're hot and they're cool and they're hot and we think that that's what he's talking about. I wish that you had passion for me like you used to, but that's not the first love. It's not our love for Jesus. It's not the church's love for Christ that they've abandoned. It's the first love. And the very first love in the church of the living God is whose? God's for us. John will later say, he says, not that we loved God. He actually says that. Not that we loved God because we didn't. It's that he first loved us. We can only love as we've been loved. See, and when you're dealing with heresies right and left, back and forth, and persecutions coming down from various groups, not just uh, the Roman Empire who hasn't really caught on to the persecution quite yet, but, but when you're being attacked from all sides, it's easy to forget that you were loved. One thing that has been easy to forget in the last three years is that God loves us. Because every day that we wake up and we're hit with something uh, uh, that, we, that, that we didn't see and all of a sudden we, we thought, man, I, I can't, we can't go any lower than this. How, how much more can we take? We're very tempted to wake up and say, where are you? How long, oh Lord? And it isn't easy to get up and face the day again and actually believe something that we may or may not have any evidence for in front of us. You with me? Has that kind of been the feeling the past three years? Anybody here ever questioned, have been questioning God's love? I have. I'll confess to you, I certainly have. So it's easy to forget this. Jesus says, but it's just as easy to remember. 
Because that's what he says. He's, he says, remember it. It's, it's a beautiful thing. He says, remember from which you have fallen. In other words, it's right there. You can get it back. All you have to do is believe. And then, and then the church will begin to teach us, the, the walk will begin to teach us that maybe, just maybe, the evidence that we're looking for was never supposed to be evidence that God loves us, that it's our faith that God loves us that is all the evidence that we need. And it, and it isn't the best answer to be able to give to a people who are suffering, and especially ones that are being persecuted. So Jesus tells them here, and, and uh, uh, prayer meeting uh, folks, it's very possible that, that Jesus, uh, that John heard these words in Revelation and then later remembers Jesus' words to them in the upper room and, and relays these words to say that just about this same time or this same era, you know, just before, uh, just after the, the turn of the first century, on, the day you, on that day you will ask in my name, and I don't say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. The church may have got a dose of John in Revelation, Jesus reminding them that, that the Father loves them, and then in the gospel that he writes that comes after Revelation, it's very possible that they were reminded again that the Father loves them, even though it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like it. But Jesus tells them it's right there. Right there. Which takes us to the next church, the next era. The next era will go from 110 till about 313, the church at Smyrna. And it's not better news for the church at Smyrna. It's not better news. He says this, he says, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Beware the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have affliction. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Notice he didn't say it's possible that you'll be persecuted. He said you will be persecuted. And he didn't say it's possible that you will be put to death. What did he say? You will be put to death. The church's news doesn't get any better. But I really believe that Smyrna becomes this church because Smyrna heeded Christ's words to Ephesus, to, to the church, and they began to remember that God loves them. And when they remembered, they heed Jesus and John's call to remember their first love. And when they do, they become the martyred church. They just begin to be martyred around uh, back at the turn of the first century. And then it really ramps up at about 303 when Di Emperor Diocletian comes in and he begins martyring every Christian believer. In fact, he says that the, 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 uh, the letter says it exactly. He says, for 10 days this will go on. For the day year principle, the 10 year reign of Diocletian from 303 to 313. Thousands and thousands and thousands were martyred. This is the era of the Christian going to the lion's dens and, 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 and all of those things. This is, this is when this begins. But it's interesting to know that when the church remembers that God loves them, they have no problem being able to lay down their lives. Greater love has no man than this, than one who would lay down his life. So Smyrna becomes the martyred church. 
I told you that, that looking back at history, seeing how prophecy's been so completely fulfilled, every time I come across something, it, it, it is just, I don't know, I, I'm in awe sometimes. But a few weeks ago, you know, Nellie and I had to attend my mother-in-law, her mother's funeral. And my mother-in-law was devout Catholic, so we knew that she would have a Catholic service, and it was, it was put on by uh, a deacon wasn't the priest, it was a deacon. And I was fascinated to, to look into the diaconate, the diaconate in the Roman Catholic Church, the history of it. And it hasn't been very popular over the past century or two, but they, they're beginning to make their way into it. Back at a church that I had, I told you that, that I, I, I met one of these deacons. I didn't even know that they existed. So I, I was interested in just looking at the history, and I, and I was looking at the history, and, and of course, the history begins with Scripture, you know, talking about deacons and, and the letters to the, to, to, uh, the church from Paul and, and Timothy and Stephen, and it, and it adds up Scripture, and then it looks at the church's early history. And Polycarp, one of the bishops, one of those church fathers that I pointed you out, he was one of the ones that, that wrote in favor of the diaconate, of having deacons as part of the clergy. And I noticed and looked, and it said that Polycarp, after he wrote this, he was martyred in the middle of the first century. Guess which church he was a bishop of? Smyrna. So it's everywhere. So the era of persecution goes from 303 uh, till about 313 when Diocletian ushers in this era of martyrdom. He ordered the edict that all Christian communities be dissolved. He demolished their churches. He burned all their books. And many were martyred. Many were enslaved. But remember there also were revered saints killed by that decree. Saint Sebastian and being pierced with a hundred arrows. Cecil and Agnes burned at the stake. And the very first bishop of Smyrna martyred also, even earlier than that. Now, it ends in 313, but did it just end? So now you have to remember all the way back to last week. I know it was a long time ago, but where did I say that, that uh, this, this era of the beast being able to begin to be formed with its very first emperor that will, that will begin to at least open up the way for Christianity to become the official religion of the empire? What year did that happen? 312. So the persecution just doesn't end. If you think that all of a sudden the empire just got magnanimous and said, you know what, we've killed enough people, let's just quit it? You think that's what happened? No, it ended for a reason. Constantine brings that end in. Rome didn't all of a sudden uh, institute a policy of religious freedom and intolerance. In 312, he wins the battle. By 321, he issues the Edict of Constantine. And, and Christianity is now the official religion of the Roman Empire. It becomes civilly enforced throughout the empire. So now we're caught up. See where we are? So the next church, this would be that era in the church. This would be the church's era. 
3.13 to 5.38. It's the end of the persecution because Constantine will bring that about. It's the church of compromise. You'll notice that this one will compromise. What I'd like to say is that it's the church just rising up out of the sea. See, I believe that these beasts are huge. They're, the, the, the scenes that he sees are huge. They're like, they're like, you know, from horizon to horizon because they represent all the peoples of the earth, amen? So it's gotta be huge. So it's gonna take quite a while for a beast that big to get all the way up out of the sea and to begin to do what he's about to do. So I believe that this is the rising. This 313 to 538, the beast is just coming up. Notice what he says. He says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. Yet you're holding fast to my name and you do not deny your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan lives. Antipas is one of those famous martyrs from Smyrna. but I have a few things against you. You have some there who would hold to the teaching of who? Of Balaam, who Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice fornication. If you notice though, for the most part, they're doing well. Some of them are holding fast, they are holding fast, but they have had some, just some, that begin to, to hold on to some false teachings. So looking at the Old Testament history of Balak and Balaam, you begin to get the idea of what the, of what the problem is. What's the nature of this compromise? Well, the teachings of Balaam. Balaam lived in modern Mesopotamia. When the king of Moab realizes he can't fight Israel, what he wants to do is he wants to find a prophet of Israel and try to get the prophet of Israel to curse them so that he could defeat them. And who does he find? He finds Balaam. Somebody who's willing to do just a prophet of God or a claim, claims he's a prophet of God, but I'll tell you, he'll do anything for money. Because he tells him, he goes, you know what? I, I probably won't be able to curse him. I probably won't. But, you know, let's see what happens. And he takes the, the, the money. He does it three times. Moab, the king of Moab keeps paying him. And every time when he gets to the end, he goes, ah, no, can't curse him. I told you that I couldn't. That's Balaam. Balaam couldn't curse Israel. But he would, if you could, he say, allow them to be led astray. Balaam could allow them to be led astray. Here's the way Numbers puts it. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down to their gods. So look, sexual immorality and feasting with idols. By the way, it's easy to happen in Pergamum. Fast forward now to Pergamum. Fast forward to, to uh, the third and fourth, uh, fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries of, uh, of CE. Rome has, has fertility gods and practices. And by the way, don't Google fertility practices. You, you won't be able to get it out of your eyes. I can't even imagine it sitting in the sanctuary on Sabbath afternoon. 
or Sabbath morning. You get what I'm saying? But fertility practices, fertility cults all over the place, temples. What he's saying, what Jesus is saying is the people in Pergamum are similar to Balaam. One thing a believer, a brand new believer, those of us living in the Roman Empire at the time, is that we had to contend then with Rome's civil religion. And throughout all of the provinces of Asia Minor where these fertility cults stood, one of the provisions was that you needed and I needed to participate in the worship of those fertility gods to ensure the fertility of the land around them. Those were enforced by law. Which, by the way, the Jerusalem Council didn't think was a very good idea for believers to do. So they told them not to. Abstain, they said, from sexual immorality. It was this kind of immorality that they were talking about. An enforced sexual practice in order to be able to worship a fertility God. Because that's what they believe brought rain and good crops and peace in the community. Everyone, no matter what they personally believed, had to participate in the civil religion. And how do we know that that's true? Well, as Adventists, we can almost quote the Edict of Constantine. Wasn't this an enforcement, a civil enforcement of a religious practice? On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates, let the civil authority and people residing in the cities rest and let all workshops be what? Closed. Wasn't that civil enforcement of a religious practice? Of course it was. So there's a few in Pergamum that are beginning to look at that and say, huh, for a little peace, for a little safety, after 10 years of being nearly martyred, maybe, just maybe, this might be the right way to go. It isn't so much the practice, it's the civil authority for the practice. It's the enforcement. How is a civil religion enforced by the empire? Jesus comes to Pergamum. These are the words of the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. How is Constantine enforcing this? By the what? By the sword. See, but Constantine has given the sword new power. I pointed out last week and last year when we, when we studied it, he believes that the cross is now the power, or at least the power of the cross is now inside his sword. He believes now that he can, that he can enforce this worship of Jesus, this power, the cross has power to be able to do whatever it is he wants to do, and this is it. There's legend out there that he went looking for the three nails that held Jesus to the cross and when he found them, when he were given to him, he molded them into the handle of his sword. Remember he was shown the cross, a key in a row, and said by this power you shall prevail. So maybe the things that Smyrna would have went to the lion's den for, there are a few people in Pergamum saying, you know what, is that the wisest use of our resources? I kind of like this. I kind of like this. 
at least we're safe, right? At least we're a little safer than we used to be. See, the persecution is no longer there. No more pressure to clarify and to focus. The cross is beginning to compromise with the sword. Of course, Jesus said, repent then. If not, I will come to you. He, he clarifies what that sword is he has back in verse one. Remember that, that one that he has, the sword, the two-edged sword? He says, if not, I will come and soon make war against them with the sword of my what? With the sword of my mouth. You wanna see something ridiculous? Google that. The two-edged sword that comes out of my mouth. The ridiculous pictures and images that people have of an actual sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, they don't get it, do they? The power of the sword coming out of his mouth is not a sword, it's not a blade, it's his word. He's the living word, the living embodiment of the love that the Father has for mankind. That's what comes and slices. That's why it's a two-edged sword that can't be matched anywhere else. All the force in the world has no power over a martyr, right? It doesn't matter if the entire Roman Empire conspired to kill this one man or one woman. It doesn't matter because the entire Roman Empire or whether it was one person that, that murdered somebody, it has no power over a martyr. Jesus had all of us and all the civil power in, in, in Jerusalem and all the power of the Roman Empire in Jerusalem. And did they win? No. That's what this sword is. So the church is, the church, what the church needs is his what? Is his word. But the church is beginning to think, nope, I think what I might need is a force that might keep the martyrdom in check. So the church begins to compromise with this from 313 all the way to 538. And how did they do with that compromise? Did they defeat it? Well, welcome to the church at Thyatira. Thyatira goes from 538 after the last Aryan threat until it's finally dismantled all the way when? 1563. In other words, this is the church of what? This is the church of the Middle Ages. This is the medieval church. We studied them last week. We studied the dragon's perspective on this. How did the church do? <laughs> they didn't do very well. She's an active church. She's full of works and faith, and, and, and she's patient. She's patient, she's active, she's improving. The angel of the church in Thyatira, these are the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. In other words, Jesus comes as a source of what again? A source of light. His eyes, fire. His feet are even on fire. He comes back to the church as a source of light. Remember, back when the woman goes into the wilderness, she is the source of light of all the earth. He comes back to the dark ages, to the darkness of the medieval church as light again. 
I know your works, your love, faith, service, and patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. That's not bad, is it? Not bad. When we usually think of the medieval church or the church of the Middle Ages, that's not what we start with. The problem is that Thyatira has deteriorated further than Pergamum. The evil had come into Pergamum and it was in just a few people, just a few members. But now the church, it permeates it. And what happened at Thyatira is that now it's the leaders that have compromised. And when leaders compromise, they then be able to enforce it now from the top down. And that's what's happened. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication, eat food, sacrifice to idols. The whole church because of the leadership. And if the leadership has the power, they're the ones that are beginning to enforce it through the church. So how'd they do with the compromise? They gave in, didn't they? Again, what's the background? It says you tolerate that woman who? It's, it's called the Church of Saints. They can't even say her name. I, I like that. Can't even say her name. I won't, even, I, I won't give her any power. Pat said it, though. Jezebel. It says you tolerate the woman Jezebel. The word in Greek, though, is not just tolerate. It has overtones of forgiveness. It forgives it. There's a sense where even the faithful people give out the message that what is being done is okay. Notice he says, they teach and beguile my servants. Who are they not serving yet? Or they were serving him, and they're even beguiled. Switch back again. Last week, the whole world wonders at the beast. There isn't anybody that's exempt from this. My servants, he says. You've beguiled them, he says. So there's a sense where even the faithful people give out the message that what's being done is that it's okay. What's the problem that even the faithful seem okay with this? The illustration, again, is in the person of Jezebel. Real quick history, Jezebel was the wife of Ahab, king of Israel. By the way, good king, bad king. Ahab was the second to the worst. The second to the worst. And one of, one of his problems was the woman he was married to. She's originally from Phoenicia, the daughter of Ethbal, king of Sidon. He was the high priest of Baal and Astarte, two of the worst fertility gods in practice back in the, in, in, in the uh, five centuries BC. Ugh, horrible. Tyre and Sidon are always known as these, these, these pagan worship centers. Remember Jesus heals the Syrophoenician woman? The reason the disciples don't like Jesus being around her is because Syrophoenicia is that area. Jezebel is the original Syrophoenician woman. Her dad created those religions. She single-handedly led the king and all the people of Israel into the worship of Baal. She personally supported the 450 prophets of Baal. 
She hated Elijah. She hated anyone that had anything to do with the worship of the living God. She continues her influence for generations in the rule of her sons and her daughter Athalia, all the way up through 2 Kings 8. You can take a look in 2 Kings chapter 8. Pergamum was influenced by an outside force. Civil worship of Rome crept in from without. Rome brought it in. Now it comes from within. Now the civil worship comes from within the church and the empire because the empire is now the church. We call it the Holy Roman Empire for a reason. There is no separating it. So it becomes from the manipulative dominance of a queen, somebody on the throne. Note the queen claims to be what though? She claims to be a prophet. So this is a religious and civil queen. She's got to where she can enforce both of them perfectly. In case you don't know what you're looking at right here is you're looking at a perfect mixture of church and state. Because note, Jezebel never forbade the worship of God. She hated the worshipers of God, but she was never able to outlaw them. So what she proposed was a synchronism. In Israel, you were allowed to do both. Until Elijah came along one day and said, "Eh, let's see. Well, actually, we'll talk about Carmel in a few weeks. But she promoted a synchronism a compromise of true faith and pagan idolatry. And she did it with the threat of the what? With the threat of the sword. After the 450 prophets of Baal were murdered, by the way, which she had been bankrolling, she was pretty upset. What did she want to do to Elijah? She wanted to kill him. So Ephesus, the post-apostolic church, dealing with heresies. It's easy to forget God's love. Smyrna remembers the martyrdom, Diocletian. It ends with Constantine. Constantine puts an end to the persecution because he now Christianizes the persecution. You with me? He now becomes the Christian persecutor. Pergamum begins the mixture of the civil and religious empire. They take the rules of Constantine and they begin to build it up. Thyatira's full-blown fruition of authoritative heresy of worship. In other words, that you could worship God if you're forced to. It's okay to force people to worship God because in the end, the end always justifies the means. It's hard to argue. Was it successful? It enraptured the whole world. Complete control from 500 to 300. Remember I told you that last week I was gonna, you know, have this again, right? This is where we are. This is how Thyatira uh, equals up, just, just in case you thought I was I was crazy or leading you astray. This is what I wanted to do. I wanted to look at another perspective of this. Just real quick about, the, about just the Crusades again. Again, like I said, you saw that, that chart last week. But Matthew White, the historian, says that he estimates three million total dead for the Crusades in the East, covering from 1095 to 1291. 
In the article, he puts it this way. He says, estimates of the number of people killed in the Crusades begin at one million by Frederick Wortham and go as high as nine million by John Robertson. Passing through three million by Fielding, Hudson, and Garrison, five million by Elson along the way, I took the low middle, Garrison's estimate, as my estimate. The geometric means of the uh, extremes is three million. And he wrote it in the great book of horrible things, the definitive chronicle of history's 100 worst atrocities. Imagine the church being on that list. And by the way, in that list of, uh, of 100, the church is on there quite a few times. And it's this church. So you see now how the church's perspective now matches the dragons. Who can what? Who can fight against it? It makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. By the way, by the time you get to 12, the whole world wondering after the beast, it's no longer the church of the Middle Ages, it's the church of the Middle Ages giving way to a brand new Protestant power. And that's what we'll look at next week. And it causes those who would not worship the image of the beast to be what? To be killed. So the two churches, two different gods, two different definitions of worship, two definitions of the sword. The civil is, is an actual military instrument, if you will. The church is supposed to have a, a, uh, an illustrative or a prophetic version of the sword. It's his living word, it's his love lived out. Two definitions of the cross. Could it be made into a sword as an instrument of war? It was proven that it can. For 1,260 years, it can. And even beyond, after the 1,260 years. The second beast is gonna get real creative in turning the cross into a sword. Or is it the ultimate symbol of martyrdom? that not even the whole world could keep Jesus in his grave. Doesn't matter how powerful it is, power has no power over a martyr. The true church, what makes this lamb worthy to sit on that throne is because he was what? It's the lamb that was slain. A God who was willing to martyr himself to be able to give you and I the opportunity to live. No matter what era we lived in, no matter what church we belong to, the church of the lamb is the true power of the cross. The dragon's church, yeah, it looks good on the surface. He has two beasts, it looked just like the trinity. He has a team, he has a church, he has a false trinity, but this church's power, this church's power is the power of the sword. They turn the cross into a sword, a weapon of offense. Offense. The church gives, makes the cross a weapon. And it's a power that obviously gets things done in this kingdom. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> power over, it gets stuff done here, doesn't it? Not a trick question, yes or no. It works, doesn't it? Has it worked over you and me? Actually, well, one person that hasn't worked over. 
It has worked over us. We've given in. In fact, in a lot of ways, some, of the, some people are thinking that Laodicea just gives up. I am rich and have need of nothing. So we feel pretty good. Just because we're not using the actual sword or we believe that we're not using the actual sword. But remember, the force is based on fear of the sword. So fear, love, there's one thing that love can't be based on. It can't be based on what? It can't be based on fear. It can't be based on intimidation. We cannot be coerced into loving something or someone. We were created not to be. But it's very easy to forget when the one voice that is supposed to be uh, representing and clarifying the church of the lamb that was slain has given over to the power of beast, when the entire church is giving over to it, it's very difficult to forget that, isn't it? So we have to be reminded. That's why Jesus reminded all of them. He comes to the darkest time as light. He comes to the beginning of the compromise as giving us an opportunity to choose between the swords. Pick his or pick Constantine's. The beautiful thing is that when John sees the entire history and future of the church, Jesus is still walking amongst it. And even in its worst period, in Laodicea, Jesus is actually, he's there. The church has locked him out. He's outside the door, but he's outside the door knocking. He's still with us. So the next time we're tempted to look back at the medieval, the dark ages, the first time that we're tempted to look at that first beast and stand there and go, oh Lord, I thank you I'm not like that Roman Catholic over there. We have to remember this. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. Who's he speaking to there? Jezebel. The power, right? The actual power, the actual religious and civil power, all the might of the Roman Empire and all the ecclesiastical spiritual power of the church, he's speaking to the power. The power refuses to, to, to repent. The power's there, it's out there. It's just waiting for people to begin to exercise it. It's there, it's an entity. It can't repent, can it? Beware, I'm throwing her on a bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I'm throwing into great distress, unless they what? The people can repent. The people always have an opportunity. The people always have a chance. To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who've not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I don't lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. He gives the institution a chance to repent, but she will not. Everyone else, all the followers of the institution, all of the participators in the institution, he gives what? He gives a way out. Which, by the way, didn't he give you and I the same way out? We just don't live in that era anymore, do we? God does not direct his wrath to the men and women of Thyatira, but to the institution. That's what I was trying to say last week. 
the institution that has replaced God. Jezebel's got no chance, but her followers do. I would say this letter is clear. The institution, yes, the people, no. Notice Jesus comes as the one that outshines all false teaching. His eyes are a blazing fire. Even his feet are on fire like burnished bronze. He outshines all of the compromise. He outshines all of the false church. He outshines all of the false power that the church gave the cross with the sword. And only he will be the one that convicts. His love is still his penetrating judgment. Love is the two-edged sword that nothing can stand up to. Jezebel lovers are still given time to repent. Jesus says repentance is only possible through one instrument, his grace. We are saved by grace through faith. So we prided ourselves on being remnant. So I ask, what do we base that on today? Do we base it on being right? Have we used our rightness as an authority, as a power over weapon? Doctrinal authority as a sword? Have we been tempted as remnant to walk around saying, oh, we are the only ones, we are the only beacon of restraint on this, on this whole planet. We're the only ones that will ever be saved. Elijah tried that. And what did God tell him? Man, there's 7,000 of you. So if we're tempted to look back and to feel good about ourselves, we have to remember that even the medieval church was the church of Francis of Assisi. Peter Waldo in Italy. John Wycliffe in England. By the way, if it wasn't for John Wycliffe, you and I wouldn't be able to read the Bible in English. Wycliffe's work had him persecuted all his life. When Tyndale took it over, he was martyred for printing it in English. John Huss in Bohemia, Martin Luther in Germany. So let me ask you this, just, just a basic question as we look back at this time. Had the reformers attacked the people instead of the institutions, would the refer reformation have continued? Would have been made it to us? Luther didn't attack the people. Luther walked down and tacked the 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. He didn't follow Catholics around screaming at them for being part of the beast. Luther went after the what? The institution. He went after the power. We'll talk about that. And just to add to that, that's why I shared you my experience with, with that one local priest that I was friends with and thanks to a church that decided they wanted to go after the people and not the institution, I no longer have a friend. Yeah, I have to confess, I hadn't seen him in a while either. I have a part in that, yes I do. But our friendship couldn't stand that test. So who's tempted to do so? The whole world wonders after it. Even John wondered after it when he saw it. Because remember, John is, is bridging the, the martyrdom church and the church that came before. John almost became four times a martyr himself. A little force, a little fear for a little safety, a little assurance to maybe look like we're winning. And why is it so attractive? Because that's exactly the God we would create in our own image. 
A God that says, love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemies also, and then begin to say, oh, well, maybe Jesus was speaking metaphorically then. Why? Because when we try to love our enemies, what happens? It doesn't work, does it? So we begin to make excuses. But a God that will let you be Christ when you want to be and let you be the dragon when you want to be, that's my kind of God. Sign me up. What do you mean I can't make myself out to be more righteous than somebody else? What do you mean I can't enforce my religious will on anyone else? The power of the sword is so intoxicating and then mixing it with the power of the cross, it has the ability and it has done it and is continuing to do it to brainwash the entire world. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to that power, to Jews and a foolishness to Gentiles. See, it makes us forget that even that compromising prophet, even that prophet who we don't look at as a prophet because he, he's he compromised. Balak was not a true prophet of God. He wasn't an iffy prophet. He simply was not a true prophet of God. But even him, even him, God gave a prophecy to be able to see the true God. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise up out of Israel. It shall crush the borderlands of Moab and the territory of the Shethites. He was given a prophecy that becomes maybe the, the second or third most famous messianic prophecy in all the world. That compromising false prophet of God was one of the very first prophets to prophesy the coming of Christ. The three astronomers show up at Jesus' birth because of that prophecy right there. They had that. And I believe they had it because Daniel took it there. The last promise for all who remain, the last promise that will hold on, and that is love even when it, when it looks like we're going to lose, that very last promise to Thyatira was, even as I also received authority from my father to the one who conquers, I will give him the morning star. And who is the morning star? It's him. Love is victorious because he's already won. And that's why we're here. And he will remain victorious. And if you and I believe, we will too. I understand as well as anybody, I think, how intoxicating the power is. I've given into that power many, many, many times. The power of being right. George Knight said it's actually the sin of being right. Human beings are the only ones that can sin while trying to be right and good. But if we understand that and we know that and we get up off the bed from her, we can come and he can give us the morning star. So I just wanted to look at what we looked at in Revelation 13 through another perspective because I really need to do it again next week because I don't think that we can understand from Revelation 13 that second beast until we look at him here 
through the eyes of the church, through the eyes of Jesus first, and then maybe we can look at him through the eyes of the dragon. I'm tired of looking through the eyes of the dragon. I want to look at most of it through the eyes of the church. We'll do that first next week. Thank you for holding on with me. I wish you all shalom.